on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. It's become part of our everyday lives now, the review. We think about eating out in a restaurant or a coffee shop, but before actually making that choice, we jump online on Yelp or perhaps Google, and we read the reviews of that particular establishment. I mention Google because it's become especially crucial. It draws 73% of all online feedback because so many of us find a place to eat by searching around on Google Maps. But just this last week, I heard the story of one restaurant that's hitting back at negative, critical reviews. A family-owned Chinese restaurant in upstate New York is generally much loved. On Google, it has a 4.3-star average. But every once in a while, someone's unhappy and leaves a negative comment online. And the restaurant could just ignore those comments or apologize profusely. But just recently, it's been hitting back. We do not want to deal with customers like you and you do not deserve our service, was the reply to one comment. Do us and everyone a favor, do not ever come back to this place ever again, was another. Now, this was not a one-off diatribe, a rogue manager having a rough day. The restaurant apparently does this quite a bit. In the restaurant world, where online reviews have an ascendant power over a business's bottom line, this restaurant is doing what other eateries can't or won't. It's arguing with its customers, with its critics. Mark Neary, who owns the Denver restaurant Onefold, shared that one customer actually complained online that their chair was too cold. I never really get helpful feedback from reviews, he remarked, Usually, if someone has a big problem, they'll email me. Now, that Chinese restaurant that I mentioned, it doesn't slam all reviewers. The restaurant is selective about going on the offensive against Google reviewers whose complaints lack coherence or credibility. More measured critiques tend to receive apologies, even gratitude. But leave a nasty one-star review for them, and you might expect a stern response criticism. It can be a real issue in our churches. Let's face it, churches are filled with human beings and we're all fragile in the process, people. Under construction, if you've been part of your local church for more than six months and nothing about it or nobody in it has irritated you, wanting you to bring perhaps a helpful word of criticism, if it hasn't happened yet, you're probably clinically dead. So, how should all of us, regardless of whether we're restaurateurs or, for that matter, church leaders, respond to criticism? Criticism, tonight, here on Lucas on Life on Premier Christian Radio. We're thinking about criticism. The service had gone rather well, and I felt that welcome feeling of grateful weariness, the warm glow that comes when you sense, as a leader, that perhaps you might have helped people walk into another day with a few more handfuls of hope. I strolled to the back of the church building to my book table, ready to pack things away. It was then that I saw it. The note was folded exactly in half and stood crisp and upright on the book table, militarily demanding my attention. 
My name was scrawled in an angry address across the front of it. Something told me that this was not an epistle of warm appreciation, and I was absolutely right. A familiar dread turned my stomach to lead as I reluctantly unfolded the note, its creases razor sharp. The words within, they were sharper still. I had obviously angered somebody in the congregation who were certainly not used to the approach that I take to preaching. I love humour, but not all Christians share my desire to smile, and neither do they have to. It's just a shame that some of them have become the joyless police, eager to arrest anyone who might possibly be having just a tiny bit more fun than they are, which isn't hard. I'm personally committed to the idea that fun is not something that should be reserved for after death for Christians and kept a million miles from biblical preaching. The writers of that note vehemently disagreed. Their scribble was like a lurid scar on paper. It screamed their indignant protest. Would you, my dear and inquisitive listener, like to hear the contents of that note? All right, then. It said... Sir, we would see Jesus, not your comedy act and nonsensical gibberish. You can't win souls to Jesus with all that rubbish. You are not a preacher. You are a comedian. You have missed your calling. The terminal diagnosis concerning me was unsigned. This person or persons who felt constrained to announce my utter worthlessness had not chosen to reveal their identity. I folded the note back in half my heart heavy within my chest. I do know what I'm called to do, and I've been around long enough to know that not everyone's going to like it. The privilege of leadership carries with it the unwelcome moments when we will feel the bitter sting of criticism. But that wildly scrawled note had the effect of a missile on my own sense of hope, blowing my joy to smithereens. I stood there and wondered about what kind of person could be so hateful in Jesus' name. And suddenly, for a moment, I didn't want to be a Christian leader anymore. In fact, for a second or two, I didn't even want to be a Christian, seeing as these so-called friends of God were such accomplished verbal assassins. Fortunately, my hankering for atheism only lasted a few seconds before logic rebooted in my brain. It's never enjoyable to be criticised, particularly when it comes wrapped in the cowardly garb of an anonymous letter, an envelope stuffed with verbal barbed wire. These days, if a letter comes unsigned, I try to not give it undeserved dignity by reading it. If a person who wrote it doesn't have the moral backbone to sign it, then why should I trouble myself reading the fruit of their spineless lack of conviction? The evangelist D.O. Moody once received an anonymous letter while preaching. The usher placed a note on the pulpit which Moody opened to discover the single word fool written thereon. Moody had a brilliant response, and I wish I was half as quick. Holding the letter up, Moody said, I've received some strange letters in my time, and many of them are written by people who write the note and then leave it unsigned. This is the first letter that I've got where the person forgot to write the note and just signed their name. Moody closed the note and waves of laughter rolled across the congregation as they celebrated their leader's wit in the face of such acidity. Apparently, it was a great moment. But... 
let's just hold on a moment. Are there times when those of us who are Christian leaders are criticised and we rush just too quickly to conclude that our critics are fools? Write off our critic too quickly and we could be ignoring an unwelcome gift of God to us. And that's not just true of leadership, but visionary leaders often find it very difficult to receive even the most constructive criticism. Blinded by our passion to follow what we perceive as a God-given mandate, we brush off words of caution, correction, constructive criticism as being born of a lack of faith. Or worse, we gleefully suggest that our critics are speaking as unwitting agents of Satan. Surely we conclude if we, like the Blues Brothers, are on a mission from God, then any voice that challenges that mission must find its source from the pit below. This is particularly possible when a church is following a prophetic word that has been given to them, because with simplistic naivety, the leaders determine that God has spoken, and so any contrary voice must come from the Satan who loves to distract, conveniently forgetting that the prophetic must be weighed, and that honest, rugged, healthy debate, feedback, and, yes, criticism can be an essential part of that process. The problem is further compounded if the criticism comes in the high-pitched messiness of an unhelpful attitude. The critic is angry, upset, maybe even spiteful, and so we conclude that the way the message is delivered, that therefore the message itself must be wrong, which is like ignoring a letter because the envelope is torn, and so we stumble on, convinced of our own rightness. Let's face it, none of us enjoy criticism and there are many times when it's unjust, hurtful, a slap in the face for the already weary. This can be especially true of some leaders who react as they do to criticism because they're just so punch drunk, so shattered from years of so-called friendly fire and they just can't take it anymore. But just as pain is unwelcome, yet is actually the gift of God to us if we placed our hand on a hot stove, So criticism may be the signaler that we hate to see, but it may just save our lives. I still encourage fellow leaders to ignore unsigned letters, as long as they have not created a culture in churches where people are too scared to identify themselves with even the most constructive criticism. But whoever we are, leader or not, let's be careful about badging our next critic as a fool too quickly because he or she could turn out to be the most faithful friend that we have. Kay and I, my wife and I, were delighted when a pair of starlings picked the eaves of our house to build their nest. We watched in awe as daily their woven masterpiece of twigs and moss took shape, a solid haven against high winds and driving rain. It was rather beautiful to watch, but... It was all rather lovely until the early morning head-butting began. Each sunrise, we were being awakened by the sound of Daddy Bird, the male starling, hurtling himself at speed against our bedroom window. What happens is he peers at the glass, attacks it, momentarily recovers from what is probably a nasty headache and a corrugated beak, and then repeats the whole performance again. This actually goes on for about an hour until the exhausted feathered fighter pilot pops off, presumably for an aspirin and a nap. 
And he's not the only one who's tired because our daily dawn wake-up calls are turning us into a couple of red-eyed, ex-nest admirers. Extensive ornithological research, about two minutes on the internet, reveals that our bruised and bewildered friend is not doing this headbutting because he's had a bad experience with a double-glazing salesman. Rather, what's happening is this. He sees his own reflection mirrored in our window, and thinking that he's spotted a predator, he launches into the flurry of attack. He sees himself, and he senses danger. And that got me thinking. When I look into the mirror, looking beyond the superficiality of mere looks, and I too am blessed with a corrugated beak, I wonder if I tend to spot the reflection of a good, godly person called Jeff, someone who's basically upright and moral. Perhaps at times I look at myself with arrogance and pride, especially when I hear of the embarrassing failure or the unspeakable evil of another. Appalled by them and momentarily glad to be me, I become like the queen in the Snow White fairy tale with a mirror-mirror on the wall who's the fairest of them all attitude. I tut-tut at others' sins and silently pronounce that I could never, ever fail as they have failed, and I become haughty and I judge them harshly, Worse than that, perhaps I fool myself. You and I should realize that the reflection that stares back at us when we look in the mirror is a mingling of grace and grime. For God has touched our lives and made us capable of greatness and love, sensitivity and sacrifice. And yet at times we can also wound, betray, and perhaps be guilty even of staggering crimes. And knowing that we each can be both beauty and beast should make us a little bit more willing not only to realistically assess our fragilities and weakness, but also make us gracious when others stumble. And we should be more open to those who would help us along the way with kind, constructive criticism, for they can help us shatter the false illusions about ourselves and rather cry out to God for his help. Pecking like that bird at my own reflection, it's a bad, senseless habit. But I do want to learn to look at myself with a mixture of gratitude and soberness and, yes, listen to my critics, because perhaps that would save me from some of sin's madness and also help me look at others with kinder, more compassionate eyes. As we've been thinking about criticism this week, let me reaffirm, none of us enjoy critique. But the reality is this, when others around us can see our blind spots, which we don't see, that's why they're called blind spots, their kind criticism can help us move forward into greater maturity. Let's be open and willing to hear. See you next week. Lucas on Life.